The film 1917 covers the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg line. It's just a movie, but how good is its history? How true to life are the characters and the regiments it depicts? Does it show a real landscape of the Great War? And how does it connect us to the battlefields along the old front line? Something a bit different on the old front line this week. We're going to look at the film 1917 that came out in the cinemas last year. This Sam Mendes film follows the story of two infantry runners, Blake and Schofield, who are given a mission to take a message to an infantry unit that's about to make an attack towards the Hindenburg line in the spring in April of 1917. It's a powerful, beautifully shot film with incredible attention to detail when it comes to aspects of the First World War. And in some respects, that's what's prompted this podcast because it's come back in the news again. It was one of the top-selling films for 2020, which, considering that most of us couldn't go to the cinema beyond March of last year, that's not probably much of a surprise because it was one of the biggest films that came out in the early part of the year. But over Christmas, I think it came up on some of the uh, subscription services, possibly Amazon Prime, and a lot of people either watched it for the first time or re-watched it. And this has prompted quite a few questions that have come in to the podcast headquarters, either through Twitter or via email. So rather than just answer those individually, I thought we'd have a look at the film and we'd essentially do 1917 Uncovered. And because this is not just a First World War history podcast, it's also a podcast that looks at the battlefields of the First World War, we'll tie that into some of the connected battlefields to this film. So when we watch a, a film like 1917, we know it's fiction, we know it's a movie, but we do ask ourselves when it's set in a real time frame, in this case the Great War, is it based on a true story? So this film by Sam Mendes is not based on a specific story of the Great War, but is based loosely on his grandfather, Alfred Mendes, who served with the 1st Battalion King's Royal Rifle Corps as a runner. It's based on some of the stories that he told to his family, and then obviously an extensive amount of research on top of that with access uh, to military historians. Andy Robertshaw, that many of you know through Twitter, and if, and if you don't follow him on Twitter, then I would recommend that. Andy Robertshaw was one of the historical advisors, and you can see that someone like Andy, who's had a lifelong interest in the First World War, uh, and an incredible knowledge of not just the facts and the history, but also the artefacts, that is reflected in, in what you see in, in the film. So for me, and, and I've said this to a few people of late, for me it, it's almost the film that the Great War has long deserved. It gives us quite an insight into the First World War, and it gives us a popular platform for the First World War that many people who would not necessarily pick up a book on the subject would go and see this film, would watch it, get something from it, and perhaps make them think about the First World War, make them think about the battlefields of the Great War and their own connection to it. So it's not based on a, on a true story, but does it reflect an actual battlefield? Does it depict an actual battlefield? Well, it does, and this is something that we'll look at as we go through the different parts of the movie. And as they say in these reviews, spoiler alert, if you've not seen the film, uh, then obviously we're going to be giving away some aspects of the plot as we go through this. 
Are there real places in the film? Yes, there are. Uh, the section where he's running through the ruined town is based on an actual location in northern France, which again we'll look at further into the podcast. And are there real units depicted in the film? Well, there are. All of the units that the men are part of are actual battalions of the British Army that were serving on this part of the front in April of 1917 in the time frame that this film depicts. So, let's look at 1917 in some detail. The film opens and tells us that it takes place on a specific day of the Great War, the 6th of April 1917. This is just before the Battle of Arras, which began three days later, on the 9th of April, and during the latter end of the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line. It's after the Battle of the Somme, after that cold winter of 1916-17, when in northern France the temperatures dropped to minus 25, when both sides were fighting the elements rather than their respective enemies, and it was a period in which the Germans had realised that they could not hold the positions on the Somme indefinitely and had decided to construct this defensive line, the Siegfriedstellung, or the Hindenburg Line as we called it, from near Arras right down to the area close to Soissons, about 100 miles of uh, positions that was built during that 1916-17 winter by conscripted French labour, by the implementation of Russian prisoners of war and obviously a huge number of specialists from the German army. And the Hindenburg Line were these deep trenches with concrete bunkers, machine gun positions, thick belts of wire, well sighted, so they had excellent fields of fire, considered really almost impregnable by the Germans. And when it was complete and ready to be occupied, the Germans began to pull back from the Somme front and through the villages between places like Bapaume and Arras, across towards the smaller villages out across that ground to where the Hindenburg Line had been sighted. And although the Germans were withdrawing, there were small-scale actions in different locations to slow down the pace of the British advance. And it's into that time frame, into that history, that the film 1917 is placed. So this gives us a contextual time frame in terms of the overall history of the Great War. The film starts with the two main characters, Blake and Schofield, asleep under a tree. And in that, the film has a beginning and an end. It begins under a tree and it ends under a tree, as we'll talk about later. So there is that symmetry. Blake and Schofield, as we discover, are runners. And these are men that delivered messages to forward positions or headquarters on the battlefield. And as we've said a few times on this podcast... The Great War was a modern conflict, fought in a modern way, but with 19th century communications, and it relied very heavily on fixed communications like telephones or with signalers that would use lamps to signal with morse or f even flags to stand up on a position and wave with flags uh, and do semaphore to pass a message to another position. Both of those, obviously, under battlefield conditions, very, very risky indeed. But runners were also part of this communications network. They would be given written orders that would then have to be taken to a position somewhere, whether that was from a forward position back to a headquarters further behind the lines or from a headquarters position behind the trenches towards a position on the battlefield. And that's how the whole story evolves from this point. A battalion of the Devons is about to make an attack somewhere near the village of Quasi. Unbeknown to them, they're walking straight into the Hindenburg line. 
Blake and Schofield are then given a message from the Brigadier to take that forward to deliver it to the commander of the Devons to try and stop this attack. And Blake has a vested interest in it because his brother is an officer in this battalion. And it's this point that people often begin their initial questioning of the film. They say, well, why send runners? Uh, Why not just send an aircraft over? Because, as we'll discuss later on in the film, aircraft uh, are part of the story. Well, you've got to be able to send the aircraft to the right location. Uh, This was a period of the war in which communications between the ground and the air were really still in a course of development. You couldn't accurately determine where a unit was located and make sure you definitely dropped the message onto the right people rather than to the enemy or to another battalion. You essentially wanted to make sure that the right message was delivered to the right people. And the only way, really, under these sort of conditions, particularly as this period with the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line was a mobile, not static period of the war, you needed to have face-to-face communication. So you needed to send runners who could carry that message, make sure it was delivered to the right point, and make sure they read and understood it. And obviously that's all what lies behind the premise, the story of the film. So with instructions from their sergeant, they've now got to move up and get to the brigadier through the rest area where we see troops at rest and tents and then into a communication trench and and what the film does obviously the, the real distances between those locations could be quite substantial uh, but what the film does because it's telling a story and it's it's not necessarily exactly in real time it compacts those distances so when we see them move from an area of open fields behind the lines with trees into the communication trench and then onto the battlefield that only takes just a few minutes in the film in reality obviously that would have taken a lot longer so it's a a clever compacting of the battlefield to keep the story moving so as they're going through the communication trenches they come out into a support line and it's here in this first proper trench sequence that we begin to see the excellent attention to detail in this film and the role of people like Andy Robertshaw in ensuring that that detail is correct. The uniforms, the equipment, the way that they're wearing them. In many films, you can see that this is an actor who's just put on a uniform for that day. But these men and all of the people that we see in these trenches look as if they've been living in these uniforms and and that, to me, takes it to another level of authenticity. Pretty much everything that we see is reproduction, but it gives you an insight into the quality of the reproductions that are available now when we see how convincing the uniforms, the webbing, the helmets, the cap badges and the cloth insignia all is. And again, it, it creates a believability in the film that I think is, is not there in many other films about the First World War. And what we see, aside from just the men and the equipment and the uniforms, is the environment of the battlefield that is depicted in this film. And that is one of its great strengths. So we see the state of the trenches and the design of the trenches. And all of this reflects what it was like on the Western Front in 1917. And the dressing, as it were, of these trenches with all the correct equipment. So there are the right type of duck boards that they're walking on as they walk down through the trenches. There are the proper trench revitment supports that hold the trenches up, reflecting the sort of designs that would have been there in 1917. And the tiny attention to detail, like seeing telephone cable running down the side of the trench 
as it would have been at the time, is all part of this environment that they're creating as part of the film. In the support line, there's that very atmospheric sequence where they're in the dugout, meeting the brigadier, getting their orders, looking at the maps. And, and the maps that they use are original maps showing the lines as they were at that time in, in April 1917. And then from there, they're moved up into the front line with their orders to go forward to take that message to the Devons. Uh, they're going to go up through the front line to jump off in a forward position get across no man's land and make their way into and indeed beyond the German trenches because the Germans have now pulled back and the Devons are one of those battalions that have exploited this on another part of the front and these two runners have got to reach them. As they move up through these trenches towards the British front line we see more of this attention to, to detail and we also get an insight into the problems that runners had moving up to, to take these orders to, to different positions because the trenches are often crowded. There are men coming up, there are men going down, casualties being evacuated, equipment being moved forward. And although there are, in some cases, up trenches and, and down trenches, the runners get caught up in all this. So you see them trying to exploit this, get round it, by going the wrong way down a trench and running into problems with it. Runners did have the authority to disregard this, to carry on, because their message, the importance of their message overruled any of these considerations and they had to use any and every method to get that message forward so some of the sort of argy-bargy that you see between Blake and Schofield and some of the men they encounter while real once the men that they were talking to realized that these were runners they would have just given way and let them through as they come into the front line we do see a, a change in the trench really when you look at this closely and the depiction of the front line is very, very good indeed. It's a good insight into the static nature of a forward position in a quiet period of the war. There's no fighting going on, but as we see as they move up, there are casualties from shell fire, from wiring parties and patrols. And we see the whole aspect of that reflected in what these two runners encounter as they move forward. And indeed, the, the problems with that, there's a, a part where the trench has been damaged by shell fire and they have to stay low because the parapet, the front of the trench, has been damaged. And if you stood bolt upright like you would normally do as you walk through the trenches, you would now be exposing yourself to enemy observation and obviously increasing your chances of being hit. And again, with one of the problems with runners moving up through places like this is that they could easily become casualties and the message would not be delivered. And when you read the accounts of runners carrying out their duties and unit diaries that mention this, there were quite often cases where they had to send quite a few teams of runners just to get one message through. As they get up into that frontline position where they're meant to be to, to make their jump off and get across no man's land, they're going into the trenches occupied by the York and Lanx. There are no regional accents, no York and Lanx accents amongst the men that they encounter, which is not unsurprising because by this stage of the war, with conscription in, in full swing, then a battalion like this, although predominantly it would have been recruited in Yorkshire at the beginning of the First World War, now it could have men from all over the country in it. So it does reflect the way the army was changing at that time. And actor Andrew Scott's uh, depiction of Lieutenant Leslie, the, the hard-pressed and somewhat cynical officer that they encounter, is not a bad insight into officers at this period, which increasingly 
could be men who had come up from the ranks because the army, the way it commissioned men, had completely changed by 1917. But with a flare pistol from Lieutenant Leslie, they're up, over the parapets, and out into no man's land. The no man's land sequence of the film, for me, is one of the most powerful in it. Because when I, I look at this, and I look at the environment, the battlefield that they depict, that these two men cross, I can see, I can hear the veterans' accounts that I've listened to, that I've read, that I remember from talking to veterans all those years ago. And that clearly reflects the excellent advice and, and research that they they had for, for this film. And, of course, being a film, this is an exaggerated view of a typical no-man's land, but it's got all the elements that we'd expect. It does give us an insight into what a typical no-man's land on most parts of the British front would have looked like at this stage of the war. Those thick belts of wire and the way that Schofield injures his hand on the wire just shows how brutally sharp barbed wire was in the First World War. When we see the strands that we pick up in the fields on the battlefields today, a hundred years in the ground has softened those somewhat, but at the time barbed wire was vicious. And we see smashed grounds, we see stumps of trees and the remains of both dead horses and of course men and the flies that we associate with conditions like that. And as they make their way through that belt of wire to get up towards the mine crater, I mean what a, a view, what a depiction they give of that part of the battlefield again with the rats, the smashed landscape, which looks very similar to some of the most iconic images of the fighting at the Third Battle of Ypres Passchendaele in 1917. So it's a reflection of that. It's speaking a wider truth. It then brings them to the tank and the mine crater. And as they gingerly pick their way around it and through it, we see the bodies floating in the water at the bottom of it, the pulverised ground that surrounded the mine crater. You know, it makes us think of craters that we know now in Flanders, places like Spanbroek Molen or Kristrat, and then down on the Somme at Highwood or at uh, Loch Nagar. We look at those now, you know, big, huge holes in a chalk downland or what looks like an ornamental pond in a Flanders field. And this is the brutal reality of what these craters once looked like. And it helps, I think, contextualise what we see on the battlefields today. And then through the wire, the two of them are now staring down into a German trench. And Blake throws out a typical soldier's expletive, surprised at the fact that it is true the Germans have really gone. And again, this reflects what happened at the time. Soldiers could not believe that the Germans had simply walked away from positions like this. How could that be possible? And we see it referenced a few times in the film where men can't understand how they've been fighting over this ground, in some cases for years, and yet the Germans will just simply give it up. And it was only once they got into places, into positions and trenches like this, that they realised it was true. Fritz, Jerry, had gone. And in this next sequence where they're going through the German trenches, again, the, the research and the advice that they got gives a very good depiction of an exaggerated but nevertheless accurate German trench. Deep, well-constructed, lots of concrete. The contrast to the muddy ditches, essentially, that these men had come through 
uh, on the British side of the battlefield. And, and it reflected, you know, what happened at that time. The Germans were here to stay. That was their view, to throw us back. And we were only occupying trenches temporarily. So why make them permanent? Why add all these features when you're only going to be giving them up to advance and break through the enemy line? And then exploring these German trenches, they find the entrance to the tunnel. One part of the trench has been demolished by shell fire, another bit is blocked. The only way through is through that tunnel. And this, again, it gives us an insight into what the Germans built as part of their defensive line. And it made me think of the 1980s going into the dugout at Zonnebeek Brickworks. They'd uncovered the entrance to a German position there and opened it up to the public. You just went along. They'd even put electric lights so you could see where you were going. So you opened the door, put the electric light switch on, and you went down the original wooden steps down into the timber-lined tunnels, and you saw the bunk beds, and you saw the positions in there, almost identical to what you see Blake and Schofield encounter as they move through this tunnel. And I remember talking to a, a veteran of, of the Highland Division, the Gordon Highlanders, who took part in the attack at Beaumont Hamill in November 1916 and got into the German dugouts in the Wye Ravine. Now, he was used to living in a scratch hole, a funk hole on the, on the British side of, of the battlefield. And when he got there and saw how Jerry was living in these concrete-lined bunkers with electric light, furniture from some of the houses, he remembered that one of the dugouts even had a mirror in it. And this part of the film gives us an insight into, into that contrast the booby trap sequence is all part of the story, obviously, but that again, that is based on actually what happened during the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg line. I've seen drawings in war diaries that show improvised um, pressure mines that were placed in German trenches uh, and in dugouts so that when somebody stood on a wooden board, it was enough weight to push down a pressure detonator underneath and blow a charge. So this is based on reality and in some cases the Germans put even bigger booby traps in. They put a delayed action mine underneath the, the town hall in Bapome for example and that went off a few days later when a, a load of Australians diggers were queuing for tea and bun outside and the whole building came down on top of them killing several of them and one guy I remember from one account was buried in the rubble for, for 23 hours. So again this is all part of how the reality of what happened in the spring of 1917 is weaved into this story. From the tunnel they emerge into the quarry where the abandoned and destroyed guns are located and this reminded me of the, the quarries for example at Miramont on the Somme which are, are very big, uh, were honeycombed with German tunnels and dugouts and positions and would have had ammunition stores and so on, not perhaps as many guns as we see in this sequence but again it, it was all for me credible uh, and reminded me of actual places on the battlefield. The next sequence, however, where they go into the farm was a bit less convincing for me. They emerge from the, the desolation of the frontline area out into the green fields. And again, they've compacted the, the distance here, but this does reflect the reality of the withdrawal to the Hindenburg line because once we'd moved through the German positions on the Somme beyond towns like Bapaume and, and Peron, we were moving into ground that had not really been touched by the hand of war so the level of destruction that was seen was was pretty minimal really the farm though feels wrong to me it, it's the it's a wrong design the brickwork is wrong in fact there is no brickwork it's a stone walled farm 
not typical of the sort of farms that were in that region of France in 1917, but I guess they had to make do with what they had in the ground where they filmed this. The section with the, the, the crash of the German aircraft and the German aviator, that often throws up a, a, a lot of questions. Uh, why did he fight back? And again, spoiler alerts, uh, why did he use the bayonets? Why did he kill Blake? Well, um, for me, the curious bit is why he had a bayonet. I mean, that's probably part of the story device, but I'm not sure that aviators would necessarily have taken bayonets up in an aircraft with them. The Royal Flying Corps pilots that I they interviewed, they did take uh, poison uh, or um, pistols up with them uh, because the two that I spoke to had both seen friends of theirs go down in flames over the battlefield and they didn't want to suffer the same fate. And one of them had decided that if that happened to him, he would take poison and kill himself and the other one would shoot himself. A bayonet, I'm not sure you'd take that up in an aircraft with you to try and do that. But as I say, it's all part of that uh, that story. But of course, it, it leads to that incredibly moving sequence in the film where Blake dies in the arms of Schofield. And, and again, it, it reminded me of the conversations with veterans back in the 80s and 90s, them talking about how some of their mates had died in their arms and, and things that often would just stop them mid-sentence when they were talking about it. And you could see they were pausing and in their mind's eye that they were back there with that friend, back on that battlefield, remembering what had happened to him. And and I found, I must confess, I found that sequence of the film quite hard to watch because of that. But Schofield, now alone, continues with his journey to take the message to the Devons. And here he meets up with some troops from the Cheshire Regiment who are moving up across the open ground in a series of trucks. So how realistic is, is that part of it? Well, once the Germans began to pull back um, and it was realised that the, the enemy was gone and that they were gone for quite some distance, then obviously vehicles were brought up to move men because in some cases the distance between where you'd been and where the enemy now was was quite considerable. And if you wanted to move men up quickly, then the arrival of trucks, as in this case, or old bill buses, old London buses converted for transport, and uh, driven by men from the Army Service Corps, they would be brought up and utilised to, to move the men forward. And the sequence with the, the dropped trees, uh, the difficulty in getting around them, again reflects what happened during that period, during that withdrawal, uh, or our advance to the Hindenburg Line, as we called it, because the Germans had cut down the trees on the tree-lined roads to prohibit movement. They'd blown mines at some of the major road junctions. They'd poisoned wells and caused all sorts of damage that slowed down our advance. So it reflects that very well. In the truck, he meets some men uh, from the units that are there, including a, a Sikh soldier. And I remember at the time the film came out, this attracted, for some strange reason, quite a lot of criticism. You know, there would not have been Sikhs present. No Indian troops there. Well, that really is not true at all. When you read uh, Ernst Junger's account uh, of uh, this period of the war in his book Storm of Steel, he's coming up against Indian troops in that part of the outlying posts before the Hindenburg Line. And there were men from Sikh units, there were men from the Indian Labour Corps, there were men from Indian cavalry units who were, were all there at that time. Um, so it's not unreasonable for them to have encountered the enemy, perhaps lost their horses, had no transport, and had met up just like Schofield with the Cheshires 
and have gotten a, a ride to get back to or onto where they were going. So uh, it is important in this film, I think, for it to reflect the myriad of faces of the Great War and the inclusion of a Sikh soldier in this is a really important part of that. This leads them up to the canal scene with the, the dropped bridge. Now, this area that is depicted in the film, there is not a specific canal running through Quasi and Akust, the villages that are the main ones involved in, in the story uh, behind 1917. But, but just down the road was the Canal du Nord and the, not far away was the St Quentin Canal. So there were canals in this part of France. And when we look at the scene as depicted, it's a really accurate insight into what a canal would have looked like at this time. And I've got the photos to prove it. Um, I've got a German photograph of a very similar dropped bridge in a canal, in this case the Condé Canal, and it looks like a photograph perhaps taken from this film. And I'll put this on the Old Frontline website, oldfrontline.co.uk. You'll be able to see that photograph. So while this sequence may well have been filmed a long way from the Western Front, it gives us an accurate insight into the sort of positions that troops would have encountered during this period of the war. And that leads Schofield onto the village of Akust, and that's where we'll move to next. The village that uh, Schofield comes to is the village of Akust, Akust Saint-Main, which was one of the villages, is a real village, one of the villages that laid in the path of the British advance to the Hindenburg Line and as part of the German withdrawal to it. So it was the final village before the main Hindenburg defences around the village of Bullecourt, for example, and just to the north, the village of Quasi, which is where Schofield was heading to try and stop this attack by the Devons. Now, I interviewed two veterans who fought at Akust in 1917 during this, this period. One of them was Hugh Parry Morris, MM. He'd served with the Honourable Artillery Company. But more importantly, Ron Short, who was an officer in the 2nd Battalion, the Queen's Regiment, the Royal West Surreys. Now, Ron took a series of photographs, and I have these photographs, and there are several of them taken in Akust at this time. And they look, again, they're real Great War images, but they look like they could be from this film. So it reflects just how accurate, really, aspects of this film is and again I'll put those on the old frontline website so you can see what they look like and this sequence of the film where Schofield is in Ikust running his way through it it's dark the buildings are burning there's atmospheric music it's one of the most memorable really in in the entire film and I think what it gives us is an insight into the dark landscape of the Great War the shadowlands of France and Flanders inhabited by this troglodyte army of both sides that fought in these positions. And it shows, gives us an insight into the difficulty of operating at night. At one minute we can hardly see Schofield, but a flare goes up and that illuminates this part of the battlefield and he's entirely visible. And then you think about the wiring parties and the patrols in no man's land during the static years of the Great War, and you think of exactly the same thing, the horrors and the fear amongst those who would have been out on these patrols doing that work on a dark night, hidden by that darkness, and then an enemy flare goes up, and they're lit up, perfect targets. And while veterans often said that 
the battlefields came alive at night. You could use the protection of darkness to move around. Cities like Ypres would come alive at night where the men would emerge from their dugouts and the cellars of the houses there and go about their duties. There was always that risk. No one wanted to be out at night in front of the wire with nothing to protect you except the darkness. And then following his brief sojourn with the French mademoiselle and her baby, where again we get a bit more of an insight into Schofield and, and his character that then we can think back to when we see the end of the film and it makes a bit more sense. He's out, jumps over the bridge and he's down into the river. Now again, from a, tying this to a place on the battlefield today, this is a less convincing part of the film, but it's all part of the story. And although there are some rivers in this area, there's a small stream that runs roughly sort of northeast out of Ecoust. I think what this is meant to depict is the Sensei River that runs up and into Quasi. It's not connected to Ecoust, but again, it's all part of using the historical facts, the reality, to tell a fictional story. So there's no massively flowing river as we see in this, no big waterfall. That's fiction. But the end sequence was a powerful one where he ends up where the river is blocked and quite literally there is a dead pool. The dead are floating in the water. And that reminded me of some of the accounts of the Battle of the Issa in 1914 where the Issa Plains were flooded. Um, so again, it's a reflection of a part of the reality of the Great War, telling a wider story of the truth of the reality of that conflict between 1914 and 18. And from here, he emerges from the dead into the spring. There's blossom falling and there's birdsong, spring birdsong. And ahead of him are the trees, the trees of a wood. And it's here an almost broken Schofield finds his way. He sees men amongst the trees of that wood and he hears the faint sound of song, faint at first and then it grows. And he's amongst a group of men listening to the refrains of Wayfaring Stranger. Again, a really powerful sequence of this film. The men sat there at rest, the bobbing helmets, the packs, and then the camera turns and comes round to the faces and it's like reading the accounts of men out at rest on the eve of their action, waiting to move forward. And we have an insight into the myriad faces of the Great War, because we see that not all of these faces are white. Amongst these men are quite clearly several soldiers of African-Caribbean descent. And as we've discussed in a previous podcast about Britain's forgotten black army of the Great War, by 1917, this was more and more common, and there could be quite a number of men of this ethnic origin serving in British infantry battalions at the front. So this is not an over-exaggeration, this is a reflection of what was there. And again, it's all part of this film's remit, in my mind, for telling the true story, reflecting all those aspects of what the Great War was about in 1917, and the service, and the bravery and the loss of men from African-Caribbean descent serving in the British Army at that time was all part of that story. And I think that the song itself that they're listening to as they sit here amongst the cool breeze running through these trees, there's a line in it that says, and the ones who've gone before me. And this is a common thing, talking to the veterans and reading the accounts of the Great War. 
these men were often inspired to continue because of the sacrifice of those who'd gone before, their mates, their comrades. And this inspires Schofield to continue with his mission, to carry on and find Blake's brother. And that leads him into the trenches. This sequence as the music builds and Schofield passes from the woodland area into cut chalk trenches was one of the most talked about aspects of the film when it was released. This was this idea of a, of a continuous shot. And as we discovered, it wasn't quite that, but it was an incredible bit of filmmaking where the action just flows and is relentless. And for me, this is the pinnacle of the film and a moment that for me in a First World War film is akin to that sequence in Saving Private Ryan at the beginning where they land on Omaha Beach. It's not as brutal as that, but I think it's very, very, and I've used this word a lot in describing this film, it is very powerful. And anyone who has failed to be moved by this sequence, watching him move up, seeing men ready themselves for an attack, all the reactions that men are having to going into battle perhaps for the first time, and then watching them go out and into no man's land to make their assault. Wow, I mean, you're dragged with them. You're dragged into this action. It's relentless for you as well. You can't take your eyes off of it, watching Schofield climb up and out into no man's land, get hit by people moving forward, knocked over, continues running, explosions all around him, but he gets to his objective. And I remember that when this film first came out at the beginning of 2020 and people started to go to the cinema to see it one of the things they again that they questioned was this sequence of film showing the trenches as they were these shallow trenches cut into chalk right on the fringes of grassland it it sort of challenged people's perception of a first world war battlefield and obviously was in marked contrast to what the depiction of no man's land had been like in the earlier part of the film and again this reflects the facts of of that time because the advance to the hindenburg line and the german withdrawal to it took us into uncharted territory and when we got there the germans had not very kindly dug a system of trenches for us to occupy directly in front of theirs it was open field so men had to dig in quickly and this type of trench dug into what was an area of chalk downland, is exactly the sort of thing that would have been there in the early stages. Now, in the weeks and the months that followed, the whole infrastructure would have been built, and those more typical First World War trenches that we think of would eventually have been here. But at this stage, and later in the war, in the War of Movement in 1918, this type of trench was more and more commonplace. So it challenges our view of the First World War, but it challenges it rightly because this depicts the reality of that last year of the conflict. But in all that confusion and chaos of battle that this sequence depicts so well, Schofield has made it through and he's made it to another dugout, the dugout with the commanding officer of the Devonshires in it who he's got to deliver this message to. There's some resistance to him doing that. And again, that is a little bit surprising because as a runner, identifying himself as a runner, he should have been given free passage to hand that message over. But for this part of the film to work, I think it it needed an actor like Benedict Cumberbatch to pull this off. There he is, the grizzled, hardened veteran of many a battle, thinking that he's got the Germans on the run, reluctant to call off the attack. 
but is presented with the cold realities of what is about to happen and relents. And I think this reflects the problems of Battlefield Command and the problems that battalion commanders had trying to judge what was happening on their front and those behind them with perhaps a wider picture trying to present what was actually happening and reacting to it. And the whole issue, what we see brought into stark focus here, is that gap between command and beyond that high command and then battlefield commanders on the ground. And the whole issue of it being a runner that has to deliver this message reinforces that because a generation later in the Second World War, this would have all been done by radio and this would have not been a credible scenario. So again, 20th century war, 19th century communications, and that is a key to understanding the frustrations of commanders on these battlefields. Having delivered his message, Schofield goes off to find Blake's brother. And again, the film here shortens the sequence between the front line and a casualty clearing station. It's like he moves from a forward trench through a communication trench and all of a sudden he's at a CCS, which was normally much further from the front. It occupied a good square mile of ground. But this is all part of the device of telling the story. And you can't have a long sequence of him going across considerable ground uh, just to get to the CCS. So he gets there. It's an excellent depiction of the medical services in the Great War and the sort of problems that they faced when they were overwhelmed by casualties following an attack like this. And here Schofield finds Lieutenant Blake and delivers his final message in a really well-observed and touching moment of the film when the grief even amongst hardened soldiers, is, is visible in both of them. And from there, Will Schofield retreats to the shadow of a tree, and he takes out that little folder, that little box that we've seen him take out a few times but not known what was in it. We've had a few hints here and there as part of the storyline, and we discover that inside are the photographs of his wife and his children. And on the picture of his wife, on the reverse of it, it says, Come back to us. How many soldiers pause like that on the battlefield? How many pulled out those photographs from home in the final moments before an attack or after a long day in the line? The character of Will Schofield speaks for so many and it was a good way to end this film, this glimpse into the Great War. And while I've been conscious not to make this run through of the film as long as the film itself, I hope this has given you a few thoughts on 1917 and will prompt you to go back and watch it again. And if you haven't seen it before, I'm sorry if I've spoilt some of the uh, the plot for you, but it is a truly magnificent film. Aside from covering a subject dear to me, it is a great film, and I've watched it again and again. I saw it the first time in a cinema at Peniston, which is not very far from where I live near Barnsley, and this cinema was there at the time of the First World War. So watching 1917 in a First World War period cinema was quite something in its own right. But as soon as I'd seen it, I wanted to watch it again. And I, I have that feeling every time I see the film. It has a massive impact on you, I think. Even if the First World War is distant to you, you become involved in the characters. You're drawn into the story. And who knows what effect it will have on younger minds, on people who've never really thought about the First World War. Perhaps they will come to the wider story, the wider history of the war, their own Schofields and Blakes in their own family tree, and perhaps prompt them to travel too along the old front line.
as I mentioned right at the beginning, before we end this podcast, we'll have a look at some of the battlefields that connect us to the story of the film 1917. Because, as I mentioned, it does depict a real landscape, an actual place, and it mentions the names of villages connected with the fighting in that area close to Arras in 1917. The battlefields of the withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line and the area around the Hindenburg Line itself, whether that be Arras or Combray, are less visited compared to Flanders or the Somme. There are a few guidebooks covering this area. I wrote Walking Arras uh, well over a dozen years ago now. Um, I'll put a, a link to these books on the Old Frontline website. Uh, Jerry Merlins and John Cooksey, the late John Cooksey, published another guidebook covering this part of the battlefields and Jim Smithson who you'll find on Twitter has just brought the first volume uh, of a series of uh, guidebooks to the Arras area out so I'll put links to those on the website and you can find those and they're useful for getting the grips with the ground and John Nichols's Cheerful Sacrifice remains the best single volume about 1917 and the area around the Hindenburg line close to Arras. So what is there to see today? Well Akust was destroyed by the end of the war and the village today has been rebuilt but as you come into the village from Bapome over on the left hand side near some trees there is a big mound of rubble from the old village that was left pushed into one place and then covered over. So when we think of that moment in the film when Schofield is running through the ruins of Akust this little pile of rubble is a bit of an echo, a bit of a shadow of that. There are several military cemeteries close by. The HAC Cemetery, the Honourable Artillery Company Cemetery, does have graves from this withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line period with British troops from the units that were involved in this area of the battlefield, including the Honourable Artillery Company. It's got a a magnificent set of uh, steps, the entrance to the cemetery, which was designed by Lutyens, is quite unusual. In Ikust itself, there are two cemeteries, the military cemetery and the British cemetery. The military one is up along the old railway line. There's a disused railway line that ran from the nearby village of Quasi up towards Bullecourt via Ikust. Uh, you'll see it on the wartime maps. And it had a, a steep embankment on the northern side of Ikust, which gave a bit of protection from the Hindenburg line at Bullecourt and there were dugouts along there, and and also this small military cemetery. And that's worth a a little bit of a walk too, because it's well off the beaten track. And nearby Bullecourt, where that section of the Hindenburg line ran, is well worth a visit. There's the old museum, private museum of Monsieur Jean Latay, the the ancien maire, the old mayor of Bullecourt, which, following his death, uh, was acquired by the Australian government, and now in conjunction with the local tourist authorities, is open as a proper museum. And there's a lot of objects connected with the story of 1917 in there, and that's well worth a visit. We're going to visit Bullecourt on another day for the old front line. And then up to Quasi itself, where Schofield goes to to meet up with the Devons to stop their attack, uh, that part of the battlefield is quite evocative. It's, it's open ground beyond Quasi, and there's a track that uh, goes between Bullecourt and Quasi, close to where the 62nd West Riding Division made their attack in April and May of 1917, that is very similar to that open rolling landscape that is depicted in the final moments of the film. And, and you can stand up there and think to those sequences, and it all connects, really. And in Quasi itself, 
another village completely destroyed by the uh, the war. There is a, a military cemetery just on the far side of the village, um, and one another one up alongside the uh, the railway line, uh, the old railway line. And my great uncle Sapper Jimmy Quantrill uh, of the Royal Engineers is is buried in there. So it's an area that I have a, a personal connection to. And the canals that we see depicted in the film, they are still there, the Canal du Nord and the St. Quentin Canal. The Canal du Nord is the nearest one. If you went down towards Peron, just north of the town, there are quite a few points where bridges cross over the canal. The one that comes nearest, I think, to what we see in 1917 is at Mosla, uh, where there is a road bridge with two brick stanchions either side, which was collapsed by the Germans during the withdrawal in 1917, rebuilt by the Royal Engineers, dropped again probably in March 1918, as we withdrew back through this area, then retaken again uh, and rebridged, and probably dropped again in the Second World War. But it's worth a visit because, again, it, it connects the film to the landscape, the landscape to the film. And that's one of the things that I hope that you'll take away from the film and indeed this podcast is that these things enhance our understanding. They enhance our visits. And just as I've stood on Omaha Beach in Normandy and thought of those opening moments of Saving Private Ryan, it'd be good to stand on those Hindenburg Line battlefields near Quasi, Acoust and Bullecourt and recall all of what 1917 had to give us visually. Something to ponder about next time you're on the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>